Imagine that you are a child again, and you find yourself in your backyard, totally bored beyond all belief. You might remember boredom, by the way, something that existed before we all had smartphones and iPads. And in your boredom as a child, you decide to walk just beyond your backyard into the woods. As you go deeper into the trees, they begin to thicken until you come to a steep ravine. You find a somewhat treacherous path that leads downward into an opening. You've stumbled across some railroad tracks. Now, in your head, you remember your mom telling you never to go down to the railroad tracks, but you push that voice aside and you run off pretending that you're a bright red train gliding down the tracks. This transitions to throwing stones against an old oak tree, to searching for treasures. You find several bottle caps, a discarded license plate, a broken ACDC tape, a half-used can of spray paint. You lie down and you put your ear to the track to see if you can hear the train coming. And you do. What starts as a deep, slow train coming turns eventually into a series of railroad cars coming round the bend. The whistle shrieking as the conductor sees you in the way. He's still 250 yards off, but you know you need to leave. You start to run, but suddenly... You're stopped right in your tracks. Pain shoots up your right leg. Pain so severe that you see nothing but white hot heat for a moment and your face flushes blood red. You look down and an upturned rusty spike has pierced your foot and you're unable to move. A train is barreling down on you. Your heart is rushing and you know that this is the end. If only someone could save me, you think. If only someone was here to help me off the tracks. Ever since Genesis 3, the narrative of Scripture is predicated on the fact that we all have a train coming. In the words of Johnny Cash, it might be a slow train coming. The train of judgment that will catch up to those acts of injustice, both known and unknown, that we commit. Or it might be a fast train coming, like the unexpected death that crashes into our lives when we least expect it. Or the cancer report. Or the sudden reckoning of the mismanaged business ledger. Whether it's judgment on the one hand or death on the other, all of us have a train barreling down on us. And our question, well, our question is the same as the child stuck on the tracks. Who will save us? And so the author of the letter to the Hebrews writes, And just as it is appointed for mortals to die once, and after that the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For the wayward child waiting on the tracks, here is the source of hope, of being saved. But we don't really like to use the term saved in the Episcopal Church This is a word owned by Baptists or Pentecostals, isn't it? 
Well, yes, no. It's also a term straight from the pages of Scripture. We've just heard it. It is an essential term for us to hold on to as those who are committed to the authority of Scripture. But the idea of being saved, it's rooted in what theologians call the doctrine of the atonement, the idea that Jesus lays himself down on the tracks and we go free. And many these days don't believe that Jesus really saves us because many don't believe that there is really anything from which we need to be saved. Or still others believe that the doctrine of the atonement, this idea that the sins that have landed on us need to be paid for, Many believe that this is an archaic notion that's unnecessary for enlightened people. This might be the talk of the sawdust path in the country revival tent, but it's hardly the talk of the educated and urbane cocktail party. And in fact, the famed atheist Richard Dawkins has said this very thing. He writes, I have described atonement, the central doctrine of Christianity, as vicious, sadomasochistic, and repellent. We should also dismiss it as barking mad, but for its ubiquitous familiarity, which has dulled our objectivity. And so he concludes, if God wanted to forgive our sins, why not just forgive them without having himself tortured and executed in payment? According to the vision of Dawkins, Instead of a sacrifice, justice will come through human effort, through progress, through the right kind of social engineering combined with the correct cocktail of knowledge. It will not come through the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It will not arrive in and through the cross of Christ. And so Dawkins asks, why can't the parent just forgive the trespass of the child on the tracks? But the fact remains that a proclamation can only go so far. A train is still coming. We need not merely a proclamation over us, but a replacement for us, a new lease on life altogether. But as Dawkins suggests, is it the case that nobody needs to be sacrificed for justice to prevail? Is that the case or do they? Well, the political philosopher and ethicist Michael Sandel is famous in part for a course that he offers at Harvard University every year that is filled to the brim with students. And he always starts off his class with the famed trolley example, an ethical dilemma that goes something like this. Suppose you are the driver of a trolley car hurtling down the tracks at 60 miles an hour up ahead of you you see five workers standing on the track, tools in hand. You try to stop, but you can't. The brakes don't work, and you feel desperate because you know that if you crash into these five workers, it's certain that they will die. Suddenly, you notice a side track just to the right. There's a worker on that track too, but only one. You realize that the trolley car is able to go on the sidetrack if you turn it. It'll kill the one worker, but it'll spare the five. What should you do? What would you do? Well, he posits that most people would say, turn. Tragic though it is to kill one innocent person, it's even worse to kill five. 
And so he concludes that sacrificing one life in order to save five does seem the right thing to do, at least according to Sandel. Now, the fact is that people are sacrificed all the time in our contemporary world, just as in ancient Rome. It's just more sanitary, especially for us in the West. Our society, we make moral decisions all the time that necessitate the sacrifice of others in in order to uphold our lives as they exist. We don't feed every hungry child across the world. We don't give care to every sick person. We don't shut down every labor camp. Whether it's the unwanted child or the immigrant, our systems are very often designed, intentionally or unintentionally, to sacrifice some for the betterment of a majority. Right or wrong, this is just the way things are. And further, given the nature of our world, it's necessary for us to engage in wars and kill some so that others may live. In fact, today we remember many who have served and even more, many who have willingly sacrificed their lives precisely so that others may live and God bless them for their sacrifice. But that we live in a world where this is necessary, what does this tell us? It tells us that the brokenness of our world and the reality of sin must be the most empirically verifiable doctrine of Christianity. Our hope will not come in denying the fact that a train is headed our way. No, our hope will come in naming the reality of our predicament and our need for help, our need for someone to save us from our sin. But what if we lived in a world where the sacrifice of some was not necessary for the life and freedom of others? What if there was a sacrifice that could put an end to all sacrifices, a once-for-all sacrifice, we might call it? What if there was someone whose life was so powerful that it could put an end to death? While returning to the Sandell trolley example, it is a false choice to be forced to choose between the one and the five because we can split the horns of dilemma, there is another option. What if there were someone powerful enough to throw himself on the tracks and stop the train altogether, to stop every runaway train, in fact? And so we hear again from the author of the letter to the Hebrews. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, at the end of the age, to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. We all have a train heading for us. The point of the perfect sacrifice of Christ is not that God needed to kill someone to slake his bloodthirst, as Richard Dawkins supposes, but it is rather that God wanted to save us to satisfy his love thirst. This may not make us comfortable, but I suppose that the discomfort of being pulled from the tracks is far superior to ignoring the train that is bearing down on us. And besides, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, we don't go to religion to make us comfortable. We all know a bottle of port can do that. No, we trust in Christ because he himself has jumped on the tracks 
He has stopped the cycle of death. He has not sacrificed the vulnerable one for the many. He has not killed the many for the one. As the one who is all-powerful, instead, he has come down himself to the tracks to save the one and the many, to save the majority and the marginalized, because he loves them all. The Roman statesman and philosopher Cicero wrote that crucifixion was the Roman way of saying, if you dare mess with us, there is no limit and no restraint on the violence that we will do to you. And the Christian God says in return, if you dare mess with me, there is no limit and no restraint to the violence that I will endure for you. God says, I will climb onto the tracks. This is the good news of the atoning God who sacrifices himself for our sins. In Christ, God absorbs into himself the train destined for all humanity. Like any loving parent, God in Christ throws himself onto the tracks. God is himself pierced by the spikes. God is himself tied to the timbers so that all the stations would no longer lead to death. God stops the train entirely and in Christ frees us from submission to any kingdoms that demand the sacrifice of others. Why? Because his sacrifice is enough. So if as a child you were found stuck on the tracks and you suddenly realized that someone could save your life, what would you do? And having your life saved, how would you live differently? Differently. 